0: Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics.
1: Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist Exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. All right, today we're going to start by reviewing the content information in chapter three and four of Campbell. Revisiting this theory material is definitely bringing back some challenging times in my studying. This material is difficult and dense, I remember scouring the internet and YouTube for some more explanatory material for this to try and wrap my head around the material. I'm going to proceed with caution here because even with all of my studying, I would not say that this is an area of confidence for me.
0: And I would have to concur that this is also not an area of confidence for me either.
1: The major theoretical approaches to developmental change encompass three views, neuromaturationist, cognitive, and dynamical systems. The neuromaturationist theories view the nervous system as the base for development. Functional behaviors occur as the nervous system develops, and the more complex behaviors reflect the higher levels of the nervous system. This theory really diminishes any consideration of the role of the external environment. This theory really emphasizes reflexes. The presence or absence of reflexes drives further testing and intervention. This theory is really the foundation of how we developed a detailed description of motor milestones in time. This information has helped us understand if a child is progressing typically and on what timeline. We will talk about cognitive theories next. There are two main ones that Campbell outlines, developmental cognitive theories and motor learning cognitive theories. Developmental cognitive theories relate specifically to the development of basic motor skills, sitting, rolling, walking. Motor learning theory was developed to explain new skill movements that older children or adults learn, like bike riding or playing sports. Regardless, they both describe an interaction between cognition and movement. Piaget contributed to cognitive theories, most notably describing four stages of cognitive development the sensory motor stage, which is zero to two years, the pre-operational stage, which is two to seven years, the concrete operational stage, which is seven to 11 years, and the formal operation stage, which is older than 11. As a pediatric PT, our main influence is in the sensory motor stage. Piaget talked a lot about the idea of assimilation Basically, a child does something, it doesn't work, and they need to change their technique and repeat many, many times before they are successful. The next part of cognitive theories is motor learning. Sarah is going to cover this in depth in the second half of this episode. I will say a key aspect of this theory is the Fitz and Posner stages of motor learning. This definitely came up a lot through our studying and is worth knowing well. They propose three stages of learning. The first being cognitive, followed by an associative phase to link parts into a full skill, and then the autonomous stage, which is the automatic stage, where they no longer need the same cognitive processes. Learning-based theories suggest that motor skill development is the consequence of learning to solve problems by trial and error.
0: PCS Advantage has a really good study guide on all of this information, and they help to kind of break it down in a simpler way. As far as the cognitive associated phase and the autonomous stage, one thing that I really thought about with learning this is in cognitive, you think about what you're doing. In the associated phase, you begin to associate from one task to the other. In autonomous, you just do it without even thinking about it.
1: That's a really great way to think about it. The last main theoretical approach is the dynamic systems approach. In this approach, no primary driving influence leads to developmental change. Many systems interact to produce skill development, hence the name. This theory also challenges the idea of predictable linear change, but instead believes that motor skills are not necessarily smoothly obtained, they just seem that way because our milestone tables are an average. But our ranges tell us there's great variability in milestone development. There are a number of theories under the umbrella of the dynamic systems theory outlined in Campbell that are beyond the scope of this podcast and probably beyond the scope of my ability to explain it to you. And the more I talk about all of this, the more I'm worried I'm going to A, screw something up, or B, confuse you more. So I'm going to end the theory stuff here. Sarah will pick up a little more with motor learning in a bit. We're happy to dive deeper if you have specific questions feel free to reach out to us on Instagram. So what influences child development? And how do we encourage parents and caregivers to provide the multiple and varied repetitions of infant-directed practice needed to advance their motor skills? External factors, meaning factors external to the nervous system. These are anthropometrics, body mass, nutrition, musculoskeletal system factors, cultural influences, and task demands. Internal factors include cognitive and behavioral factors, sensory factors, including the vision, vestibular, and somatosensory systems. This is where the book talks about development of postural control. Another important concept to have in your master study guide are the age ranges for development of postural control using sensory factors. There's a great chart on page 44 of Campbell in the fifth edition.
0: I second this. This came up a lot during our studying and during prep courses. This was definitely crucial information to know.
1: We're going to talk about motor control next. When we talk about motor control, it is mostly related to rehabilitation versus the course of typical development. A few common motor control theories include movement synergies related to controlling degrees of freedom and central pattern generators to account for basic neural organization and function. Postural control is another subject that comes up frequently in a lot of different literature and study material for the test. Makes sense. It's a pretty big foundation in what we do as pediatric PTs. Postural control is the combination of sensory systems, so the vision, the vestibular, and the somatosensory, musculoskeletal system, and motor control systems. When we talk about postural control, we often talk about reactive postural adjustments, RPA. This is a closed loop response. It is corrective. I give you a push, you react, you don't fall. There's also an open loop version using anticipatory postural adjustments. These function to minimize potential postural perturbations. You know you are going to do something that will challenge your balance. So you anticipate, you change your posture, and then you proceed. The book dives deep into these and has great examples of both strategies. Chapter three of Campbell ends with normal development guidelines for general motor development, reaching, and gait. It would be incredibly boring for us to review normal developmental guidelines for you. I was very confident with motor development timelines because I have done a lot of standardized testing in my career but I urge you to make sure you are confident with development of not only normal motor skills, but things like reaching, grasping, upper extremity use, and object manipulation development. As PTs, many of us do not necessarily focus on the fine motor and upper extremity information as much, so it was definitely a weaker area for me. I used flashcards for these until I felt very comfortable with the material.
0: Let's move on to chapter four, motor learning. Along with Sheila's chapter, this one was definitely a doozy. I had a really tough time understanding motor learning and motor control, so I would highly recommend using additional resources to ensure that you're clear on the subject matter. Like I mentioned before, the PCS Advantage Study Guide on Motor Learning and Control has a great way to break down the different theories and does a really nice job explaining each one.
1: I second the PCS Advantage Study Guide here. I felt like it was a little bit better organized than the book and written in just a more user-friendly way. This is where I turn to the internet and good old Google to just solidify some of these topics in my head.
0: For this chapter, I'm gonna be very general because it is very, very dense, and I want to make sure that I'm explaining everything correctly without making any errors or assumptions by mistake. There are three things that influence the learning of motor skills. The person, the task, aka the skill or activity, and the environment. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to creating intervention to target these three things. The chapter then goes into talking about some of the motor theories, but what I'm going to focus on is some of the different terms that apply to learning, practice conditions, and feedback. There are two types of knowledge that influence motor skills, explicit and implicit learning. Explicit learning is also known as declarative or, quote, what to do. Implicit is also known as procedural or how to do a skill. Verbal description indicates an explicit knowledge of the skill, and performing the skill well demonstrates implicit knowledge. So, Verbal description, explicit. Performing the skill, implicit. Stages of learning are also important. Gentilly described two different stages, early stages and later stages. Explicit learning is more predominant in the early stages, and implicit learning is more dominant in the later stages. Generalization is also known as a transfer of learning to everyday world activities. This is an important thing that we work on with our patients. Think of working on a skill, such as transferring into and out of a wheelchair in the therapy room, and being able to perform the same skill when the therapist is not present.
1: You will see this concept over and over in your study. Using skills in meaningful situations should be the guiding principle of our treatment sessions.
0: When teaching a child to perform a skill, we use different types of instructions. One form of providing instruction is through demonstration or modeling. Another way to provide instructions is through verbal instructions. Two things to keep in mind with verbal instructions are the amount of instructions, so fewer in number and concise in presentation is best, and the need to focus a person's attention. An internal focus is when the person is focusing on the movement themselves and an external focus is when they focus on the intended movement outcome. Research has shown that better learning occurs with external. Presenting feedback during practice can be extremely helpful. Feedback is information that the therapist provides to the child during or after the task. Knowledge of results refers to feedback about the outcome of a skill, and knowledge of performance is related to the movement characteristics that led to the performance outcome. Motivation is also key while performing a task, and feedback can also provide a good source of motivation for a child. Feedback that refers to the mistakes that a child makes is more effective in facilitating motor skills, and feedback that refers to correctly perform aspects serves as a motivational role. A less than 100% frequency of feedback optimizes learning. When feedback is available less frequently than on every practice attempt, the learner engages in a more active learning strategies on trials. Fading feedback, self-selection technique, and interspacing of motivational and error correction feedback are also techniques utilized in practice.
1: The research hasn't really defined an optimal way to disperse the two types of feedback, but you need to be familiar with the types of feedback and the techniques to reduce frequency that Sarah discussed.
0: For the next section, I'm going to run through just some main definitions regarding practice structure. The PCS Advantage study guides do a great job of breaking down these and providing examples as well. Practice variability is when there are variations in the context in which the skill or activity is performed. Two ways to increase practice variability is through movement exploration and discovery learning. Two types of practice schedules are blocked and random. Block practice schedules engage the learner in a non-repeated sets of practice trials. Random practice schedules engage learning and performing all skill or activity variations in random order throughout the practice section. Early practice involves block practice, and as practice continues, smaller block sizes are introduced until a random practice schedule is achieved. Practice specificity is also key. So if you want a child to work on walking and get better at walking, it's important to work on walking. Mast and distributed practice are another type of practice structure. Mass practice tends to be longer, active practice and shorter rest periods, while distributive practice has a shorter practice time with longer rest intervals. Whole practice is when the activity is practiced all at once and part practice is when segments of one activity are practiced at a time. Skills that are low in complexity should be practiced as whole skills, while more complex tasks should be practiced as part practice. You can also reduce the difficulty of a skill to still practice it as a whole task rather than breaking it into parts if needed. For typically developing children, information should be provided at a rate in which the child can process. Reduced feedback has shown to be less beneficial than feedback provided after every trial in children. In regards to motor learning and pediatric rehabilitation, practice makes better. Task-oriented training is key, put stars next to that one, and salience of motor activities is key.
1: Yes, task-oriented training. I can't think of a concept that was more burned into my brain by the time we were done studying. Task-oriented training is one of the most researched concepts shown to be successful in pediatric rehabilitation. Remember, in episode seven, when we discussed that the PCS is really focused on evidence-based medicine, this is one of your evidence-based approaches. The book uses constraint-induced movement therapy and bimanual training as examples of task-oriented approaches. MedBridge also has some great content on this information in their cerebral palsy content. As we wrap up this very complex group of topics, you may feel a bit overwhelmed. I think it's important to hit this content early and return to it throughout your studying. It is foundational and you will see it creep back in often while you're learning about evidence-based interventions and all of the different conditions. PCS Advantage and MedBridge both are good additional resources that present this content slightly differently to help you have a deeper and more confident understanding. We tried to stay general here because we really just didn't want to add confusion but this is where we're open to questions and suggestions. As you're getting into your studying and you start hitting this content hard, reach out and ask questions and we'll do our best to clarify, offer examples, or reach out to our wide expert net to get you the answers that you need to feel confident. We are still learning right along with you.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember,
1: you totally got this.